everyone. Thank you for joining us. This is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make up fisheries science. If you haven't already, follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at FisheriesPod. And if you're the generous sort, you can support the Fisheries Podcast through Patreon with either a one-time or a recurring donation which will help us pay for various parts of the show. If that's not your thing, you can always get some swag at the Teespring store, including shirts, hoodies, stickers, and face masks. Our guest today is Dr. Jennifer Silver. Jennifer is a social scientist and associate professor in geography, environment, and geomatics at the University of Guelph in Canada. Her research addresses a range of topics, including international environmental politics, fisheries science and management in Canada, and local decentralized forms of governance. She received her doctorate from the School of Resource and Environmental Management at Simon Fraser University, and she did a postdoc at the Duke University Marine Lab. She's here today to talk to us about a paper that she and her colleagues wrote titled in the American Naturalist, titled Fish, People, and Systems of Power, Understanding and Disrupting Feedback Between Colonialism and Fisheries Science. Welcome to the show, Jennifer. Yeah, thanks for the invitation. I'm glad to be here and uh, looking forward to the chat. So Jennifer, you came to my attention because of this very interesting paper that you wrote about the Pacific herring fishery in British Columbia. And it's a paper, I should emphasize, that was not just written by you, but you have many co-authors, each of whom brought their own perspectives and expertise to that paper. And unfortunately, we were only able to get you on the show today. But it's a fascinating paper, to my mind, because it's so complex. It, it weaves together so many different threads pertaining to the Pacific herring fishery, and it makes it a little bit difficult to know where to dive in. But I wonder if we could just dive in with a sort of overview history lesson, because I found that quite fascinating, and I think it will be to the fisheries people who listen to the podcast, on the history of, of fishery science. So can you, and then maybe we can get into more of the controversies as we go along. So would you mind providing that? Yeah, sure. Thanks. Um, so I will, the first thing I will say is that, yes, we have a diverse authorship team. Uh, as the lead author on the paper, um, I'm a social scientist and I'm a social scientist who's very interested in the relationships that people and societies have with the environment over, over time. Um, and my training and a lot of my research has tended to be in coastal communities, um, both indigenous uh, communities in British Columbia or the place we call British Columbia today, as well as non-Indigenous communities. And obviously fish are very important um, to people in these places as a food source, as sort of important to culture and, and history and tradition, um, also as um, income and source of well-being. And so, yeah, this is this top this topic on, on the questions of the history of, of fish, fisheries science um, is an important one to the people that I, I know in those communities, as well as the pe people that you'll see on, you see on the authorship list of this paper. And so, yeah, we, for a long time as a group of collaborators and authors have talked about kind of the, 
the arc of fishery science and the ways in which fishery science um, and its approaches have been institutionalized into state-led decision-making about fish and fisheries. And so that's kind of where we're coming from. And so one thing that we trace in a couple sections of the paper are the, as the sort of change, the emergence of a distinct field called fishery science. And so I guess it's it's sort of a, a period of time wherein fish, fisheries are really industrializing. So kind of like post-war, World War II, um, wherein we historians kind of characterize this period of time where fisheries are, are industrialization is frenzied. There's a lot of state subsidies for both um, fishing vessels and, and countries are looking to, to expand fisheries further afield. And so this is a sort of historical context for the emergence of the, uh, what is a distinct field of fishery science, whereas sort of previously You'd have your your biologists, um, people interested in sort of the physiology of, of specific, specific species of fish. And so there's sort of this period of time, again, where fish, fisheries are industrializing um, and, and need a way to rationalize decisions about fish, about, about single stock, stocks of single species of fish. And so really begin to thinking, thinking about fish as sort of a, in the aggregate less in terms of what does this specific um, species of fish do at a specific time of year or how does reprodu reproduction work to thinking about um, well, will we know those biological details and what can we say then about the aggregate of, of fish called a stock um, began to be very much that that term began to be much more commonly used can we describe them statistically and can we can we make um, assumptions or predictions about how many of them are out there and what and what they're doing at different times of year and, and then use that to inform um, decisions about allocation and 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 timing of fisheries and so on um, and, and so it's this kind I of just, do you want yeah. to just interrupt you have a, a can, you have some interesting quotes and I love the Huxley quote in particular in the paper about some of the assumptions beforehand or that were driving this can you elaborate on that Right. Yeah. The Well, the Huxley quote is a, a relatively, we're certainly not the first um, folks to point point towards him or that quote, but the assumption that, um, you know, this goes back to like, to uh, Britain and sort of the periods of time where Britain is looking to um, expand and colonize. And uh, as we, and we'll probably talk more about um, colonialism, a big part of that is sort of appropriating lands and resources. And so there was us along with that underlying that an assumption um, that Huxley said quite clearly in a, in a speech that um, the idea that fish are inexhaustible, you know, that mm -hmm. human, um, human activity, w we could go on and, and grow fisheries, and, and then that wouldn't, um, wouldn't negatively impact the availability of fish for human use. But, mm -hmm. but there's, um, Again, throughout this conversation, I imagine we're going to come back to the point of um, the relationship between some of these ways of thinking about fish and sort of geopolitical and economic interests mm -hmm. in expanding expanding fisheries, but not just within sort of territorial ones, one country's own territorial waters, but into other waters and, and needing, um, yeah, having to have sort of rationalizations for that and mm -hmm. how to, um, yeah, basically it's a, the science is a important part of, of claims making about where fish, fish, fishing can and should happen and who should be the, the who should be doing it, who should be managing mm -hmm. it. 
Right. Um, yeah. Okay. And I just, I'm going to throw in that that was, we were referring to T.H. Huxley, uh, a.k.a. Darwin's bulldog, in case anybody needed some clarification on that. Yes. Okay, so sorry I interrupted you. Um, so here we are. It's the late 19th century, and we've got fisheries expanding all over the world and colonialism. And so how is fishery science developing here? Uh, during sort of the Huxley period? Or just wherever. Please go on where you left off. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I truthfully have my paper in front of me here, so I'm trying okay. to keep make sure I get all the juicy um, yeah. timeline details. Um, but yeah, I, so there's a, there's a really one of the best parts for me of writing this paper was actually reading some really great work by some historians who have tracked um, fishery science by going into archival documents by interviewing different fishery scientists, by, uh, by looking at documents at the um, inter, like intergovernmental documents and different um, meetings that happened. Um, and so, yes, there's this sort of interesting parts of the paper. Some of the most interesting parts of the paper to me are the period of time where the United Nations, um, which of course is a, is a body through which um, globally we try and um, negotiate and make decisions and come to agreements about how we will by we, I mean countries at this point in time, kind of collectively manage things like the ocean. <laughs> mm -hmm. And there's a period of time, um, yeah, I think like that's starting in the 50s and 60s, where there's just like discussion about uh, a global agreement on oceans. And, and so when we get into contexts where countries are negotiating over something like a shared resource, a shared body mm -hmm. of water, and the resources like fish that are within them, um, it's starting to be a period of time where science, not just fishery science, but science is the, the information, the knowledge that it provides is a valuable, valuable tool, certainly to conversations about how we should be collectively managing. And um, yeah, so there are part passages in the paper which draw from work of these historians that talk about the different negotiating standpoints that countries like the U.S. and encouraging also Britain at this time to sort of adopt an understanding of fish as uh, in aggregate, as biomass, as stocks, and taking stances essentially that fishery science is a great way to kind of demarcate stocks, keep track of them, and ironic, well, not ironically at all, in fact, but a lot of the expertise in fishery science at this time rests in the United States and the UK. And so there's an expectation, like, we'll use our science <laughs> to help, um, well, certainly as negotiating standpoints in these discussions, but also to help say, like, if countries abroad don't have the expertise to, to demarcate and, and to, to know their, their fish stocks through these, through these types of, of ways of thinking and doing, then, then we will do that and we will fish up to the point at which um, at this point, the idea of maximum sustain, sustainable yield is coming into play. And so, yeah, there, that to me, that's some of the most interesting um, bigger pictures meet in the paper is this relationship between the early days of kind of intergovernmental negotiation and discussion of how we'll collectively manage oceans and fish. And that there's this new emerging scientific understandings and approaches to knowing fish and that those in negotiations and things like that, there's evidence to suggest that that the U.S. in particular uses the idea of MSY to help uh, argue for fishing further abroad and and that kind of thing. So, on that note, you the the first sentence in this paper in the introduction reads: "Science is not separate from or neutral to power, 
Questions are chosen and research is conducted in the context of political economic structures and processes, often those built and shaped by nation states. So can you elaborate on how we used, and we haven't really broken into when maximum sustained yield became the paradigm, but uh, so I'd like to hear more about that as well, and also how places like the United States and Britain how does that how is science not separate from power in that situation yeah i so this um that opening sentence and this very idea comes uh from a field of study called science and technology studies which really kind of says that as i've just been talking about you know scientific understandings and ways of doing things pieces of technologies usually emerge out of particular historical contexts um, and so that's where that statement is is coming from broadly. So how did the science that you said most of the expertise was located in the United States and I think you said Britain, how was that used as a tool by mm. the United States and Britain for their own political economic interests? Yes. So what's really important um, when you take a kind of standpoint where you're like interested in the, in the social context and historical context of science is to recognize that one ways that humans organize themselves is through institutions and that have like have and use information, like basically put information to use. Right. So for me, that, that is sometimes fundamentally when, when we talk about that science is not, neutral to power, it's not necessarily that the single scientist doing their science is intentionally or even unintentionally like doing the bidding of country X or person X. It's just, it's often that, that the work that scientists do is within the context of particular institutions and institutions um, and organizations certainly have higher level goals and objectives. And so for the case of um, the U.S. and Britain um, at, the, at the particular time at which, you know, these discussions and negotiations around the um, conference on the law of the sea is happening is that, again, um, and fisheries and when is, when is the conference on the law of the seas? Um, it is negotiated in the it was ra first ratified in the 80s. Okay. So but it worked on for a long time, like I would say late 60s or early 70s. I'm not I think that the exact date probably is in there. Okay. But okay. yeah, so the intro, I guess what I was going to say is that those countries, Western countries, I'll even make it a broader brush stroke to what many Western countries saw fishery, fish and fisheries in other parts of the world. So Latin and South America, the South Pacific as underutilized, mm -hmm. right? So there are fish, there's excess biomass out there. Based on, based on the maximum sustained yield model. Came, came to be understood that way. I think mm -hmm. that initially there's just, well, you know, there was a sense that there aren't industrial vessels out there in some of these parts of the oceans fishing that, that maybe that, and I think that there is an underlying assumption perhaps that there was uh, fish to be caught, there were fish to be caught. And so then the idea of maximum sustainable yield is one that is helpful to make a, to, again, it's not that single scientists are saying we should go out and fish wherever we can, but that the idea of maximum sustainable yields is taken up by individuals who are negotiating in these settings to, to argue for, um, fishing 
allowing for fishing further afield. There's a part of the paper where we talk about disagreements over um, some of the, again, Britain and the U.S. Um, argued for smaller exclusive economic zones at first for countries. So that, and, Right. Why did they do that? Yeah, because they're interested in those exclusive economic zones are domestic spaces where na- the nation states whose zone it is has more of a say over fishing activity. So if you imagine those those domestic spaces are smaller rather than larger, it creates for more quote unquote high seas where it's perhaps easier to to be a foreign fishing vessel. And and since the United States and Britain had most of the big industrialized yeah. fishing vessels, it was to our economic advantage to have smaller zones around the coast. That's that's right. Yeah. And that was actually new historical detail for me in the reading that I did. I didn't realize there was this period where the U.S. was advocating fairly strongly for quite small zones. And and then other countries, again, in Latin and South America and the South Pacific were kind of pushing back, but it took quite some time. I have to look in the exact number of years in the paper, but I want to say in the realm of one or two decades before they landed on the the much larger um, 200 nautical mile exclusive economic zones, which, you know, countries with large fishing fleets still find ways to fish in in those domestic waters, whether it's agreements with other, with the countries whose waters they are, um, that kind of thing. But certainly the idea of maximum sustainable yield, again, again, no, I'm not um, trying to point fingers at any single thinker or scientist that um, adopted that as a, as a way of understanding fish, but it, um, again, it happening all at a period of time where there are these sort of like state interests at the level of a state and, and going further afield, um, for fish with their, with their fleets. Hey, I say point fingers all you want, but anyway, hey. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's move on now to this, the specific example that you used in the paper of the Pacific herring in, uh, what is now British Columbia. Could you describe the what's going on there and how we got to this point? Yeah, that's a very big question, which we spend much of the latter part of the paper exploring. Um, I guess the first thing, the place I would start is by saying is that, of course, the province of Canada that we call British Columbia today is um, the longstanding um, and unceded traditional and hereditary territories of many different Indigenous nations. And when I say unseated um, in the context of this place in particular, it's it's quite literally true um, for almost all of the the land area and, and ocean area of BC. Um, treaties were never signed between Indigenous nations and European arrivers. It's not true um, for some other parts of Canada, but in British Columbia, which was uh, later to enter into Canada, um, treaties were not reached. So there's an untre- it's a it's an open question, although the Canadian legal and, and systems of property and all this have built up such that many people don't don't know that. Mm-hmm. But I'll just begin by by saying that. And so yeah, indigenous peoples have been in that part of the world for over 14,000 years. And the archaeological record and oral histories tell us about all sorts of very ingenious ways in which groupings of people um, and nations up and down the coast kind of um, interacted with, collected, managed, cultivated um, land and seascapes. And so we spend, you know, a little bit of, well, certainly some time at the beginning of one of the sections in the paper, really wanting to acknowledge that and recognize that um, Western science and archaeology is really only catching up with the 
trying to understand some of these these interesting practices and systems, both of interacting with environments, but also like how people made decisions through consensus in different in different units in different ways. And so that's part of the paper is to acknowledge that. And we talk about the ways in which, uh, yeah, I mean, when Europeans started to arrive and then settle, completely different viewpoint on the world. And this is when I, you know, began, we began our chat talking about that, the relationship that people and societies have with the environment and with, with what we call resources is different in different times and places. And so, for example, Europeans arrived with this very strong idea about private property rights, um, which was very, which is completely foreign to um, indigenous ways of seeing. So, you know, it's kind of part of, telling this story specific to Herring is trying to set the scene in a broader way to um, your, in terms of what it was, you know, European arrival really implied and how essentially this is colonialism. Like, so settler colonialism is when groups of people arrive with the intent to settle and stay and to essentially make the place um, sovereign and, and theirs. And so we wanted to kind of acknowledge that. And so in the context of um, fish and fisheries, and Herring specifically, we tell the story essentially of how initially Ottawa, which is some of your listeners um, may or may not know is the capital of Canada. So Ottawa is initially when BC joined Canada, wasn't necessarily interested in fisheries in a big way. It was more like the forest and, and, and clearing land for farming and settlement and so on. But it took a couple of decades and they got very interested in the commercial potential of fish and especially exporting to Europe and so on. And so some of those some of those broad ideas in the earlier parts of the paper about the fact that science emerges and is used and institutionalized in certain ways in certain times we look at more specifically in the case of herring. So there are like industrial herring fisheries um, kind of start to happen, and there's some certainly some state oversight and management of that of like who participates and then early emerging um, scientific approaches to understanding herring as stock, certainly understanding them in, in aggregate. And, in, and as you mentioned, in, uh, ecologically in isolation and some of the science and some of the new Canadian laws and ways of managing fisheries are used to kind of exclude indigenous harvesters and practices. And so there's kind of this tension between on the one hand, really large fisheries happening at the same time that <laughs> indigenous peoples and practices are discouraged if not outright criminalized from participating in in fisheries using their methods and approaches so i think that's so what what are their what were the indigenous methods and approaches that were criminalized yeah so um there's a really neat um use of of herring eggs actually so herring um spawn on kelp um they spawn they come in very close to shore in large groups to spawn and one really important and, and cool Indigenous practice was to lay out kelp and branches, things that, that the, the herring would deposit spawn on, and then those would be removed um, and then put in brine or prepared in other ways. And so that was an important food source and a, and a way of gathering that didn't actually result in the mortality of the fish themselves, rather it's the eggs. So, they were so that's an important the, the one. eggs, it's sort mm-hmm. of caviar on kelp. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. yeah, it's um, yeah. A lot of times now, I mean, I've I've had it um, myself, and it's um, put in brine, so it's it's yeah, it's quite it's crunchy and salty. 
I, I'm not going to go ahead and call it chips because uh, I don't think that does it justice, but um, certainly, yeah, it's a very um, unique taste. And that was criminalized? Uh, eventually. I don't know if we actually pinned down a date in the paper of when this particular practice, but what, you know, so like through the 40s, 50s, 60s, there are a lot of criminalization of a lot of Indigenous governance and resource practices. Um, and so if not outright criminalized at this point in time would have been strongly dis- discouraged. And then when we get into the 60s and 70s and beyond that, there are very specific licenses for certain types of fisheries that are being allocated. And so this eventually there is a, even today, there is a specific license type for, for spawn on kelp. There's not very many of them. And so you can't really do it unless you have a license or there, each community is allocated a, a certain amount allowance for food use. But whatever you capture for food these days um, absolutely can't be sold in any kind of way. So there's a real distinction between food fisheries and commercial fisheries. And the logic would be uh, if you're eating the eggs, then they're not going to turn into fish that you can capture. And uh... Yes, yes. But there's, I, as I understand the science, there's sort of discussion there about like, well, it's clearly not every single egg that is laid it grows mm-hmm. up into a fish right. itself. So there's a certain... Uh, I'm at, I, as I understand it, like you could expect that a certain amount could be removed and it wouldn't really have much of a discernible impact at the population level. Right. Um, yeah. Okay. What other, in what other ways have the indigenous groups been excluded or pushed out or how, in, in what other ways has this Western notion of fisheries science impacted them? I think one of the interest, one of the most interesting things to think about is the way in which, again, so fishery science, thinking of single species of fish at the scale of stock uh, for the purposes of making allocations, understanding that those allocations are to a certain number of license or quota holders. And so if we think about that, um, and oftentimes, and this is true in British Columbia, that there are only so many licenses. Sometimes there, actually there's a market value associated with them. So mm-hmm. if you're not sort of one of the original recipients of a license, then in order to get into the fishery, you have to pay what can be a lot of money to participate. And so that sort of market pressure in terms of on the access side to the fishery has certainly squeezed not just Indigenous folks out of fishing as a commercial practice, but also people in coastal communities and so on. And so I think that the whole kind of very structured system of knowing fish in certain ways for certain, for, for making allocations in certain ways, if we think of that together, has that has meant that there are fewer people fishing and it's harder to get into fishing. And if we compare, say, to the 40, to the 40s and 50s, when it was much fishing was much more accessible to anyone who wanted to get involved in it as a commercial practice, there were certainly lots of Indigenous people. There's some really interesting books, which we won't get, I won't get into, but some that show that Indigenous um, harvesters and shore workers were incredibly important to the BC fishing industry in the 50s and 60s. And then this sort of market market-based approach to allocation and people and that you know people essentially leaving the sector and sector getting smaller that's a period in time in which indigenous commercial fishers were kind of leaving probably proportionally at a higher rate than Mm non-indigenous um and so we touch on it in the paper but not probably to the length i've just sort of described it but i think that that's been 
in more recent decades, um, a, a process through which there's been marginalization of our indigenous folks have been marginalized away from participating in commercial fisheries, including um, herring. And so as they get marginalized and pushed out, then they don't have, uh, it's a lot of feedback loops, right? So as they, mm-hmm. as, as a group gets marginalized and pushed out, then they don't have the economic clout. So they don't have any political clout anymore in the Department of Fisheries and Oceans. Is that the regulatory yeah, agency? That's, yeah, DFO, yeah. Um, um, and then uh, then DFO is going to probably, going back to the original sentence in your paper, uh, use the science that justifies whatever it perceives to be its main constituents, which now turns out to be large commercial fisheries. And so it all just feeds back on itself uh, over and over again. Right. It has the potential to. Yep. So if we think of the, uh, you know, when I was sort of talking about and the paper talks about the earliest, like big uh, reduction fisheries and herring um, and the ways in which then like indigenous practices are seen as quite separate from that. And if not very strongly discouraged, that sets the scene for some of the decades that I was just speaking about where we have kind of quite a market-based system for access. And so, yes, in that sense, um, decades past at the scene and those who have been marginalized in decades past are in a less um, strong or powerful position relative to, to others. And so that just, that of course matters and feeds into current decision-making, which then will impact the shape of um, future management systems. Mm -hmm. And I think that there are a lot of really um, excellent folks in DFO and and lots of um, fishery science scientists more broadly who see this and are are like fully, well, are aware of it and trying trying to understand and think about how to do their science a little bit differently, but also be more aware of how this, the broader system works in ways in which we can like collectively create space for things like um, different ways of knowing or understanding fish at different scales, more local scales, and how to design our institutions so that type of information um, has a place and has a um, has the potential to um, shape decision making. Um, and so, to me, and that's where I kind of see where we where we are. It's not that people aren't aware of some of these challenges and tensions it's as we have designed very 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 structured fisheries management systems that are encompassed within state agencies and then the broader interest of the federal government in the case of Canada of course is fish that for export fish caught at at large scales by industrial vessels um, so that's the kind of challenge that we all find ourselves faced with I think so that is a great segue to the end of your paper where you have some suggestions. You have a a series of, I think, three or four very specific suggestions on how we can begin to redress this situation. Yeah. I mean, I will say they're very kind of um, high level suggestions. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's a caveat to say at first. Yes. Yeah, so first, um, transform, we um, will read directly from the paper, transform the siloed institutions, practices, and culture of Western science. Um, so this is, in a sense, this is not just oriented towards fishery science specifically, but even social science disciplines. The fact that we think about disciplines and we tend to act within d- disciplines, or in the case of government agencies, quite siloed institutions, we have 
different ways of knowing and different understandings um, that tend not to, to mm-hmm. <laughs> talk with one another so well, or when they try to, as I've learned with working with fishery scientists and, and certainly in a longer, you know, over a longer period with people in coastal communities is that the way that we talk about things can be quite different. We don't have shared language. Mm-hmm. Um, we come to the table having, I, as a graduate student, had to read a lot of social theory and had to think about capitalism. And then I come to the table to sit down with, uh, you know, an Indigenous um, leader, and they have a very deep understanding of their history and their generations back and stories. And so even finding, it's not that there's not, there's certainly common ground there, but it takes a little while to find, to find that and to find the language to be able to communicate about that. So it's very difficult and very kind of a broad suggestion, but this is the first one is really what we're trying to get at there is that we need to kind of be open enough and humble enough to come together and to say, I don't, I don't know this, or I don't understand that, or we have different understandings. Let's try and to talk and, and figure out some shared understanding. So that's, that's really what we're getting at there. So incorporating and networking and integrating indigenous systems of knowledge with Western science, and even then amongst the Western academic fields, I guess I'm going to say, trying to get the natural scientists to talk to the social scientists in a common language as well. Does that been, has it, have you found that difficult? Yeah, I do uh, find it difficult. I'll tell you, this is a bit of a departure specifically from the paper, but my entry point into thinking about a lot of this has come from having the great opportunity to be part of projects and teams where folks are trying to think about fisheries models slightly differently or to to, to do that differently in ways that can uh, they're more open to integrating uh, Indigenous knowledge or at least being how they operate within the context of these complex histories and, and spaces. And so there's so much that is difficult to understand if you don't have that background and kind of um, stats and even the programming and like all of that. And it's, it's, I can listen to it and I do. And then it's like trying to find these little spaces where I think I understand what's being well generalized or what is, what patterns are trying to, people are trying to like represent in the model. And I go, okay, well, like if we think about um, the community of resource users or the fishers here, like they're, they're thinking or doing this. And so if we tinkered with the model in this way, could we better capture what their responses might be? But it's very, cha- yeah, it's incredibly challenging. And I also imagine the reverse, like if we put a, a single modeler in a room full of social scientists talking about, you know, the history of, of capitalism in a certain place or of, you know, co- colonial arrivers, like, to try and find entry points to to speak about that is would be difficult too. So I think it just it depends whoever has the most numbers in a room of a conversation like that 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 the conversation carries on in their language. And so it's it can be uh, you know it's hard to kind of in, interject in in ways that matter and can help move the broader objectives of the the team and the project forward. Well, for me personally, it was very helpful to just look at the chronology that you laid out in your paper and watch when concepts like maximum sustainable yield were developed at the same time that global events like the development of the UN were occurring and the treaties that were being negotiated. It's very interesting to just, it really makes you think about uh, the fact that a lot of these scientific models were definitely not developed in a vacuum. There was, there was, you have to keep that context in mind. Yeah. 
Yeah. And in some cases, you know, the uh, somebody from a, a body that's funding some of the science is also in the UN negotiating room. Like, so there's, again, it's thinking about society in terms of its structure in the form of institutions and laws. And, and then that's, of course, science and technology is going to develop in relationship mm-hmm. with that. Okay, so that's um, one suggestion you have, and then you had two more or three more suggestions for how to. Yeah, um, we had the second the, one, which was to reimagine and rebuild pathways between information, which can include and should include diverse values and perspectives and decision making. And so this is really drilling down into the um, institutions responsible uh, or that are, have been given authority to manage our resources. And um, in the case of DFO, which I know the best, uh, fisheries and oceans, there are a lot of the history of DFO, if you kind of look at back 30, 40 years, have done a great job of integrating and and hiring scientists into the institution. Like there are amazing, some of the best fishery scientists um, in the country are in DFO. And so that means that 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 capacity to do the science is internal to the institution. Again, fishery science. So they have very few, for example, social scientists. So for the purposes of generating um, the specific types of knowledge and specific predictions needed from year to year to make decisions about allocation. And so I guess what we're a, a different way, slightly different way to put our second suggestion would be to say, well, what would decision-making look like if there were actually social scientists or if there were um, a more formalized way to like speak with a collective of Indigenous leaders in the Pacific? And what would they have to say? And where in the process of decision-making would that information get used? And I don't have the answer for that. I mean, if you gave me a couple of years, I might be able to figure out a, a way to tinker with the structure of the institution and decision-making. But is to say that the way that institutions are designed are not the only way that institutions could or should be designed. So we could give some thought as to how to have different voices at different stages of decision-making. Um, and there may even need to be new legal requirements for what types of information are considered and when, but that's really what we're getting at there is to say there's a way in which information is generated and considered internal to an institution. And that doesn't necessarily have to be the way that information Mm -hmm. is generated and considered. So let's be creative. Think outside the box. Yeah. Okay. And anything else? Any other? uh... Yeah. I guess the the third one that we had was just, and this is more of a, there needs to be, would need to be like a, a concerted willingness on the part of the government is to devolve some degree of authority down to indigenous groups or, or communities or so that there is some sort of like parallel body or institution that it is indigenous or has indigenous representation that helps to actually be at the table for decisions. So we get, we talk about devolving authority, governance authority. So that's what we're thinking about there. And I would say wherever there's, there's sort of centralized and hierarchical decision-making doesn't necessarily have to be that it would be an, an indigenous co-governor it just depends on the situation so it could be uh, in other places maybe where there where there's a different history it's it's like local peasant resource users or something like that Mm -hmm. so right we're just speaking specifically about bc in this context but i think there's uh, uh, there are often 
more marginalized groups that have some degree of there could be some amount of um, of rights that they that they have or that they could be given to be involved um, in governance. Okay, I think that that is a good segue. There's normally we have um, five questions, but I'm going to skip some of them and just go to the last one that I, we ask people at the end of the interview. So back to what you were just talking about. Here's the question. If there was one point or principle that you could have programmed into everyone's head, what would it be? Oh my gosh. I wish you had, you should have given me a heads up with this one. Um, programmed into everyone's head. I think humility. Has anyone ever said that before? No, but I, I like it. This? Yes, absolutely. I like it. I think for on many levels um, that we've, and on to many points that we've spoken to today, I think I will just start by saying, because like personal humility is crucial to just being a, I think a nice person, but in the context of interdisciplinary uh, work, um, recognizing that you come to these settings and spaces, not knowing everything and certainly probably not knowing the full picture of the best way to that things could be done differently. Um, and then I think in terms of just our understanding our own histories, you know, like I'm a, I'm a white settler Canadian. Uh, and until I went to graduate school, I knew very little about these histories and it's sometimes, yeah, very difficult to confront them in, as an individual and to then confront what that means for your own um, privileges and positions. And so humility is a huge part of that. And I think humility in our relations, the last thing I'd say is humility in our relations with what we call the environment. Um, we're not as in, as in control as we would like to think. Um, and uh, that in and of itself is like kind of scary. You think, of course, think in the context of climate change, but also um, opens up doors to probably want to think about how to think differently and do things differently. Um, so I, I, that's the last thing I'd say on that. So uh, just off the cuff, uh, humility would be the answer um, for me there. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Jennifer, for coming on the show. If people want to get in touch with you, how should they do that? Uh, well, uh, as you mentioned, I'm, I'm faculty at the University of Guelph. So you could go to my profile page in the Department of Geography, Environment and Geomatics at the University of Guelph, which is in Ontario. Um, you can find me on Twitter at yes. JJ Sills. That's where I <laughs> so, found you. Yeah, you can, uh, you can send all the fan mail that you like to Twitter. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> and um, can I publish your email address in the show notes if people want yes, to contact you? Yes, okay. of course. Yeah, over email is just fine. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, thanks again for coming on the show. And I hope that all of our listeners have enjoyed this episode. And remember that you can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app. And don't forget that you can help support the podcast with a monthly contribution through Patreon or buy some fisheries podcast swag on Teespring. I am Anders Halverson, and our guest today has been Dr. Jennifer Silver of the University of Guelph. And that is all. Remember to uh, be humble in all approaches and in everything you do. I think that's an excellent last point. So thanks again, Jennifer. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.